Hi there, it's Matt here and welcome back to the podcast. This is a very different kind of podcast, an AMA, an Ask Me Anything podcast. I am joined today by a fantastic partner in crime, my wonderful colleague from the Center for Human Sleep Science, Dr. Etty Ben-Simone. Hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. Let's dive right in. All right. So the next question is actually a topic we had a lot of interest in, and it goes back to what we discussed in the beginning, uh, the difference between males and females in terms of sleep. But this time, zooming in on sleep and female hormonal changes. Now, can you tell us a bit about how sleep changes during the menstrual cycle and then the transition to menopause, the merimenopause period, and then the menopause period? Okay, fantastic. And I will also answer the question about hormone replacement therapy a little bit, but I know it can have some controversy. So there are certainly very intricate, of course, and dynamic hormonal changes during a woman's menstrual cycle. And there are equally significant changes during menopause, and both of those will influence sleep. By understanding the interactions we can try to see if we can think about what people should expect during each of those phases. So let me start with sleep and menstruation and the menstrual cycle. The menstrual cycle, just as background for anyone, on average, it, it's around about 28 days, but it varies from one individual to the next. It's characterized by fluctuations in hormone levels. And perhaps they're not the only two by any means, but Two of the primary hormones that change are estrogen and progesterone. There are others, of course, as I said. And I'll take these sleep changes that happen during menstruation based on the different phases of menstruation. So I'll start with the follicular phase of menstruation. That happens between about 1 to 14 days of that 28-day cycle. And this phase starts on the first day of menstruation and continues until ovulation. At this time, estrogen levels rise during the follicular phase. And studies have shown that females tend to have an increase in REM sleep during the follicular phase relative to the luteal phase. And that increase is non-trivial. It can be up to 32% relative increase during the follicular phase relative to the luteal phase. So then let's come on to the luteal phase, and that's somewhere between 15 to 28 day mark. That's what happens post-ovulation. And at that point, progesterone levels surge. And while progesterone can have a sedative effect, and that's what we've been finding quite consistently, some females do still, if you look at the data, it's not consistent. Some females will experience disruptions in their sleep. But if you look day by day, it seems to happen particularly in the later luteal phase. And in fact, I think there's some data that found that during that late luteal phase, there's up to 25, maybe it's 27% reduction in the amount of deep non-REM sleep during the luteal late phase compared to the follicular phase. That's so, quite a reduction. 
it's really quite a reduction. So both a stark increase in REM sleep during the first 14 days, the follicular phase relative to the luteal phase, but then during the luteal phase, you see this significant decline in deep non-REM sleep. Again, we're trying to understand what that means and cause consequence. Is it that those sleep changes are helping orchestrate those hormonal changes? I think that's probably less likely. Are the hormonal changes the drivers of the sleep changes that I've described? So in other words, rather than sleep changing hormones, are hormones changing sleep? I think it's probably more so the latter, hormones changing sleep. Oh, I should probably come on to heat regulation and sleep because we'll come back to it during menstruation. Core body temperature varies considerably during the menstrual cycle, and that is due in part to the hormonal fluctuations. And I will come back to that aspect of what we call hot flashes in menopause in just a little bit. But let me stick here with the menstrual cycle. The rise in progesterone that I described in the second half of that 28-day period, which is the luteal phase, it can cause about a 0.3 to 0.5 degrees Celsius increase in body temperature. Now you may think, well, hang on a second. In the daytime, it can be X degrees Celsius and at night it drops by 10 or 15 degrees Celsius. 0.3 or 0.5, surely that's not much. Inside of your body, that is quite a large amount. The relative change there is non-trivial. I like that word a lot, I think. And that change, that increase in body temperature in the luteal phase, the second half of the menstruation phase, caused by the rise in progesterone, can create feelings of warmth that will disrupt sleep and disrupt your ability to maintain sleep. As I've spoken about in the episode on temperature and many times before on this podcast, we need to cool down to fall asleep and we need to stay cool to stay asleep. But yet, during the luteal phase, progesterone increasing, body temperature increasing, therefore, sleep disruption can increase. Maybe we can just add that in the follicular phase, it is when an egg is about to be released. So it's really the start of the cycle. And from what you're saying, basically, the worst part of the sleep is at the later phases, right? Then when we lose a bit of deep sleep, and we also have the changes in temperature. Correct. Yes. Thank you. So I was doing start, quote unquote, based on numeric day of cycle, day one through to 28. But you can also think of it as the point of ovulation that is the start. So yes, essentially in the luteal phase, that's when some of the sleep challenges will probably begin or you will notice them more significantly. So post-ovulation, I suppose, is just a better temporal lock to think about this and the changes in progesterone. Despite progesterone having potentially some sedative effects, and by the way, the way that we've looked at that too is during sexual intimacy and during intercourse and during orgasm, post-orgasm, progesterone levels and in females, oxytocin levels can actually increase. And both of those seem to have a sedative effect. But here we're talking about changes in progesterone that are not across minutes or decaying across an hour or so. But here we're talking about them across days. And that could be a very different equation. So thank you to remind me of that. Okay, on to menopause. 
gosh, this is such an issue for so many women. It is a question I get asked so much on social media and in the public. For me personally, I don't mean to sound critical. I don't think there is anywhere sufficient enough research, both basic research or therapeutic work on the topic of menopause, considering how problematic it is. Don't get me wrong. There are amazing scientists, and I know many of them, and clinicians who are doing incredible work in this area. I just think we need more funding to do more of it. So let me start with sleep and the perimenopausal period, which is the transition phase leading in to menopause. And that can actually last several years. And it is marked by really quite erratic fluctuations in hormones. So sleep problems will start to begin there. You can get some of the hot flashes But the hot flashes, which I now want to center on, are really front and center when we come on to menopause. And these hot flashes are sudden sensations of intense heat. And when they are happening at night, they can lead to increased awakenings for the very reasons that I just described. So let me come back to the perimenopausal period somewhere between maybe 30 to 40% of females going through that perimenopausal period will be reporting sleep disturbances specifically linked to the hot flashes. I wanted to expand a bit on the hot flashes for a second. They can happen any time of the day, but if they happen at night, they are called night sweats. And clinically, these changes in body temperatures are known as vasomotor symptoms. So I know you said you like words. So why vasomotor? Because there is a change in the vascular, in the blood vessels. And whenever we are feeling a bit hot, the body is trying to cool us down by expanding or dilating blood vessels. And And the dilation requires a muscular, that's a smooth muscle change. And hence the motor part of the vaso. Exactly. And it's a bit like opening a window when you expand the blood vessels, you let more heat dissipate from the body. But Mm. in menopause, probably because of the dropping level of estrogen, that mechanism is not so well regulated. So now if you feel a bit hot and the body is trying to cool you down, there is a huge exaggerated response. Too many blood vessels expand all at once and that leads to this strong sensation of heat that you mentioned. And, and that's that, that swelling heat because of the swelling vasomotor relaxation, response, which exactly. gives you this feeling of a warm flush on the surface of the skin. Yeah, I didn't know this, but women often report feeling cold and even shiver right after a hot flash because of that very dramatic swing in body temperature. So Yeah, I, think- I mean, it's the same thing when you get out of a hot bath and you vasodilated, you mean you got rosy cheeks. And then if you're not diving into warm, cuddly clothes, you are going to get pretty cold pretty quickly, despite coming out of the bath being very warm and very toasty. Yeah, you become so efficient at losing heat. I can imagine how all of these swings in temperature can really disrupt sleep. It's quite an issue. Essentially, it's a pendulum somewhat uncontrolled. What you want from a pendulum is nice dynamic movement one way and the other when it needs to. But here you're getting these very extreme pendulum swings that are not well regulated. So now let me speak about menopause and the architecture of sleep. 
because I haven't mentioned that, females in the perimenopausal period will often experience a decline in the amount of deep sleep. And we actually see that deep sleep is hit harder during that perimenopausal period than REM sleep. So we can see up to about 40% of a reduction compared to young female counterparts. So again, 40% is rather striking. Post-menopause, by the way, females will experience a further reduction in estrogen and progesterone. Approximately 40 to 50% of post-menopausal females will be reporting problems. When I say they're experiencing problems, basically one out of every two post-menopausal females is struggling with sleep. What do I mean? It's both struggling to fall asleep and or struggling to stay asleep. So in other words, sleep onset problems or sleep maintenance problems. But if you look at some of the data, I think those are probably underestimates. The amounts are significantly higher. Why are those changes happening in deep sleep? Again, we think it's because estrogen is dropping, deep sleep is dropping. Unfortunately, it's a vicious cycle because a lack of sleep will exacerbate the symptoms of menopause. And so the menopausal symptoms increase, which makes the sleep problems become even worse. As the sleep problems become even worse, the menopausal symptoms become worse, and you can see the negative spiral loop. Finally, I'll come on to the sticky topic of hormone replacement therapy. So hormone replacement therapy, HRT, and specifically BHRT, which is called bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Bioidentical hormone replacement therapy involves the use of hormones that are chemically identical to those produced in the body. Several studies have certainly suggested that when females start BHRT, the sleep quality can improve. So for instance, if you do that bio-identical replacement of estrogen, it can lead to a 15 to 20% restoration in the duration of deep sleep and 25 to 30% reduction in nighttime awakenings. So does hormone replacement therapy on average seem to help with these sleep problems and also the specific architectural changes in sleep? Yes, it does. But I also know that there is a lot of controversy around hormone replacement therapy. If you are interested in trying to understand that controversy, I would simply say Google my good friend, Dr. Peter Atia, which is A-T-T-I-A, and just Google Peter Atia, HRT and menopause, and you will both listen to an episode of his fantastic podcast, and you will read a blog post. And I think he's probably got a very unbiased, brilliant medical mind. Oh my goodness, is he sharp. And so I think his insightful razor of data analysis will give you some additional information to make your own choices. And of course, it is your own body you need to make your own choices, hopefully informed. Just to add that specifically the discussion about hot flushes, the hot flushes respond pretty well to hormone replacement therapy. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Good, great point. And also coming back to what we talked about in the beginning, the difference between males and females in terms of sleep, 
a lot of the changes in slow waves that we see in younger ages in females, they shrink during the transition to menopause. So it does tell us a little bit about how hormones play a part in the differences that we discussed in the beginning. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker, which is a service that comes out to your home and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is going on inside of you. Hence the name Inside Tracker. They look at your blood, your metabolic signals, your hormonal health metrics, and then they give you a personalized actionable set of lifestyle changes in response to that readout. And the goal there is to improve your health. I was looking and informed they have some new cardiovascular and new hormonal biomarkers that I'm particularly interested in. One that I'm focused on is something called ApoB, which is an absolutely critical heart health measure. And I get it done now with them somewhere between four to six times a year. Why? Well, my family, unfortunately, has a strong history of cardiovascular disease. So I am checking that pretty ruthlessly. And by the way, I do buy the product myself out of pocket. I don't want to fall prey to any of those trappings and undue incentives. And for a very limited time, Inside Tracker is giving you 50% off the bundles. We're talking two or even three of the ultimate plans, and they will be tailored for you. Plus, they're also offering 30% off everything else in their store. So just go over to insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Again, that is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. And you can start getting some money off. So the next topic is about sleep and chronic pain. Unfortunately, a very common condition. About 25% of American adults suffer from chronic pain. And people ask, how does chronic pain affect how a person sleeps? And can it even change the duration of sleep relative to before developing pain? Oh, so pre-relative to post-injury, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, good questions. There is a deeply interwoven relationship, I would say, between chronic pain and sleep disturbance. In fact, it's probably one of the strongest associations that we see out there in the literature. When people say, what are the principal reasons why people are not sleeping well? And that's different to not sleeping enough because there it's sort of often more about lifestyle. But having problems with sleep, I would usually say it's going to be insomnia and sleep apnea, sleep disorders. And then I would say it would be about physical pain and chronic pain. That's how powerful it is. The relationship between the two is intricate, it is reciprocal, and it is multifaceted. Let me see if I can explain that. So chronic pain, by the way, what is it? It's often defined as pain that lasts or reoccurs for, depending on your clinical survey cutoff, anywhere between three to six months is where we draw the line and say, okay, now you've transitioned over into chronic pain. And yes, it does significantly influence sleep patterns. It's reciprocal because poor sleep 
can exacerbate the perception of pain. And we've done some work in this area too. Dr. Adam Krauss, who's now at Stanford, shout out. He's done some epic work with me on this topic. Others have done great work. I would say if you're interested in this topic and you want to read papers, just Google Michael Smith, Sleep and Pain. And he's done some of the most brilliant work in this area. So let me get to it. What is the impact of chronic pain? This is not what's happening after the injury. This is once you've transitioned to now a chronic long-term pain. Let me start with gross sleep structure. And here I'll start with sleep efficiency. Sleep efficiency, which as I mentioned before, represents the percent of time spent asleep relative to the amount of time that you've been in bed is markedly reduced in individuals with chronic pain. Those with chronic pain can have sleep efficiencies as low as 70% or even less than that. Again, as a relative reference, if you're pain-free, you're healthy, you'll have a sleep efficiency of anywhere between 85, 95%. Down to 70%, 30% of the time that you are in bed, you're awake. And that is, again, far from ideal. It gets you then close get, to numbers of aging that we see in aging, basically. Very much so. That's a good point. Basically, chronic pain can essentially age you in terms of your sleep efficiency by 20, 30, even 40 years. That's how striking it is. As to changes in the architecture of sleep, as we've been trying to speak about the big picture of sleep and the architectural differences, there are changes. And what we found is that REM sleep is reduced in people with chronic pain to, on average, it can be around about 20% relative to individuals who are pain-free. Now that can differ based on the source of the chronic pain, but I'm just trying to give broad brushstrokes here. What is it replaced by? Well, it's replaced both by wakefulness, which is what I've just described in terms of reduced sleep efficiency, and also an increase in the very light stages of non-REM sleep, typically a lot of shallow stage one non-REM sleep. Why is that important? Well, it means that when people with chronic pain wake up the next day, they just do not feel restored by their sleep. So there is a reduction in what we call the restorative quality of sleep. So your sleep restorative quality is an interesting measure, by the way. Sleep restorative quality is not about your sleep. It's about how you feel during the waking day. So you can ask, what is the quality of my sleep that came the night before? That's one question versus how restorative was my sleep. And the way we often measure the restorative nature of sleep is not by looking at your sleeping night, but asking about your waking day. That's often how we measure your degree of sleep restoration, and that is decreased. Of course, if your sleep efficiency is down that low, it means that you have what's also called sleep fragmentation. And what we've found and other people have found is that patients with chronic pain conditions, things like, for example, fibromyalgia, they can be awake three to four times more frequently across the night relative to individuals who are pain-free. I should also speak, I don't think I spoke about sleep duration. Yes, there are sleep duration differences as you would expect. If you're spending 30% of the night awake, you're spending less time asleep. That is because both of the discomfort and the distress that is caused by the pain. 
And what we found clinically in terms of sleep disorders that comes on to sleep duration is that somewhere between about 50 to 70% of individuals with chronic pain disorder would be classified as having insomnia based on the amount of their disrupted sleep. Now, if you go back to the episodes, plural, on insomnia, you'll realize that you won't be able to receive a diagnosis of primary insomnia disorder if the underlying cause of your insomnia is pain. That is secondary insomnia, secondary to the cause of it, which is pain. If you don't have pain, but you still have problems with sleep, then you would have primary insomnia. The other thing I should note, by the way, which is kind of interesting, often what you'll also see in pain patients is a reduction in sleep, but an extension in the duration of time that they stay in bed. And this is so understandable why they are seeking relief and seeking rest. So whilst the amount of sleep declines, they try to stay in bed longer to see if they can make up some of that lost sleep and get back some of that sleep restoration. Now, again, that's a very tricky thing to do because it can lead to a worsening of the insomnia. And you'll hear all about that in my episode on insomnia treatments regarding sleep restriction therapy. Lastly, pain, at least post-injury, which is not about chronic pain. What we found is often, depending on the injury, there is post-injury insomnia. Following an accident or an injury, a significant number of individuals will develop what is called post-traumatic insomnia, PTI. And what we found is that up to about 30% of individuals, and again, it's very specific in terms of what type of injury that you've had, but on average, about 30% of individuals post-injury are going to suffer from some kind of sleep disturbance and even post-traumatic insomnia. And that can typically last anywhere from weeks to months. Why are we getting these problems with sleep, by the way, caused by problems in pain? Well, it's also not just about the fact that the physical aspect of the pain, the pragmatic aspect of physical pain can obviously wake you up and prevent you from getting back to sleep. What's interesting and what we've tried to make note of is that the brain's pain processing networks do have quite a significant overlap with the areas that regulate sleep. And a good example of that would be the thalamus. The thalamus I've spoken about before, it's this sort of sensory hub inside of the brain and it has to shut its sensory gate, closing shut for you to get to sleep. Those regions, and we've published work in this area, again, Dr. Adam Krauss, thank you very much, has shown that pain can induce changes in the thalamus, which can induce changes in sleep regulation. That region of the thalamus can become overactive post-injury, and as a consequence, it can disrupt sleep patterns. Anything to add there, anything that I missed, anything that I wasn't particularly clear, well, <laughs> I think it's probably easier to answer. Was there anything at all that you were even vaguely clear about, but there was <laughs> anything that you want to correct there? Just want to add that chronic pain really helps us see the importance of the continuity of sleep. Oh, good point. Yeah, the major difference here is just not being able to get sleep in a continuous manner, that fragmentation. It's funny to say, but we don't really know why sleep has to be continuous. But the minute we fragment it, 
either because of pain or just people do experiments in the lab and interrupt their participants every now and then. The impact is very robust on how people feel the next day. It's so true. And I think, if anything, I think you're right. The pain field of sleep medicine has probably in the past 10 years made us start to realize that perhaps sleep quality, which includes fragmentation versus continuous, is as, if not maybe even more important to focus on than sleep quantity. And you have probably been someone now who is doing the same thing in the domain of emotional and mental health, which is one of your specialities. You've been finding that, yes, sleep duration can matter, but if anything, it seems to be not just the quantity, duration of your sleep, but this seems to be about the quality of your sleep that is even more impactful for mental health than your quantity of sleep. Now that's, again, not to say that you shouldn't focus on quantity as well. You need both. You can't get away with shortchanging either one of those. But what carries the vote on the final day statistically can be perhaps even more powerfully registered to this thing called sleep quality than sleep quantity. Is that a first statement? Yeah, absolutely. We see it a lot in terms of the association with anxiety and depression. How well you sleep is just as important as how much. So true. Okay, next question. And maybe, oh gosh, we've got so, so many questions here. I'm going to say that maybe we should do two more questions. All right, so let's choose the juicier ones. The next one is something we actually know a lot about in sleep science. I'm very happy that people have asked about it. It's the difference between actual sleep, one that is measured by any objective device, versus the perceived sense of how well we slept. So perceived versus actual sleep. We see it a lot. What do you think about the importance of this metric? And also, what do you think about the differences in quantity and quality between perceived sleep and actual sleep? Oh, good point. So what is the difference between what you, the sleeper, feels as though your sleep was versus when we measure it objectively, either with trackers or in the laboratory with polysomnography, what was your sleep? In other words, objective sleep versus subjective perceived sleep. Is that exactly. sort of the, the number of it? Yeah. Okay. You're right. There are some really fascinating differences in terms of perceived sleep duration and perceived sleep quality relative to the objectively measured sleep duration and sleep quality. It's always sat with me as this strange paradox because on the one hand, I think we're all pretty good at understanding in general, did we have a good night or not? If you have, let's say a, a significant other and you wake up in the morning, you go into the kitchen or whatever. And one of the first questions you often ask is you'll say, how did you sleep last night? And people are very quick. They don't need more than probably four to 500 milliseconds to give you a response. They know they can say, oh, I didn't sleep well last night. So we have quite a degree of certainty about our sleep. I've spoken about this mismatch and what I would call as a mismatch between objectively measured amount and quality of sleep versus subjectively perceived sleep in my series of insomnia. There is a certain flavor of insomnia called sleep state misperception, and it is a very extreme version and a good demonstration of where the insomnia patient 
after spending the night in the laboratory, will wake up the next morning and speak to us, the scientists or the experimenters or the clinician, and they'll say, well, there it was. I just had a shockingly bad night. I think I was probably only asleep for about an hour. And then you'll show them the sleep trace and you'll say, actually, you were asleep for almost seven hours and you were awake for only about an hour and a half. And it's just mind boggling. I'm exaggerating the numbers there, but they have this gross sleep state misperception. Their subjective sense of sleep is very misaligned, very mismatched with objectively how much sleep that they're getting. P.S., as I mentioned in the episode, that does not mean that we don't treat it seriously. We treat sleep state misperception insomnia as a real condition, and there are specific treatments that people will try to provide to help those patients. So we don't dismiss it just because there is a difference subjectively versus objectively. Does it mean we should let go of how subjectively people feel about their sleep? I don't think we should do for two reasons. And I think this is wonderfully demonstrated by the revised criteria for insomnia. Typically, back in the day, we used to think of insomnia as one of two things, problems falling asleep, sleep onset insomnia, or problems staying asleep, sleep maintenance insomnia. But then what we found is that there are a considerable number of insomnia patients who fall asleep fine and they stay asleep. But their complaint is that when they wake up the next morning, they just don't feel restored by their sleep. So this brings us back to the restorative nature of sleep. Because it's so pronounced, we've now added it to the diagnostic criteria. So you can still have insomnia, even if you don't struggle to fall asleep, and even if you don't struggle to stay asleep. But if you wake up each day feeling unrefreshed and unrestored by your sleep, you can still receive a diagnosis of insomnia. So no, in sleep science and in medicine, we do not negate the subjective metric of how you're feeling based on how you feel your sleep has been refreshing you. Good question. But let me come back to the sleep state misperception in people who don't have insomnia. What we found is that when we take healthy, normal individuals, and let's say we awaken them during REM sleep, by the way, so yes, your perception of sleep isn't ideal. Another example, by the way, I love is, let's say you've gone on a long flight, transatlantic flight, if I'm flying from San Francisco back to London, and I get on the plane, and for some bizarre reason after my dinner in those uncomfortable seats, I'm actually able to fall asleep. And I fall asleep, and then I wake up. What is the first thing that I do and probably you do on the plane? First thing you do is check your watch or check your phone because you want to see how long have I been asleep? Why? Because you don't have a good subjective sense of how long. You could probably say, mm, I'm going to guess maybe about two hours, but maybe you are only asleep for about 48 minutes. So you're off by good amount. But what's interesting is that it's not consistent based on what stage of sleep you wake up out of. What we found is that when we wake people up out of REM sleep, they will consistently underestimate how much total sleep time they have had to that point by up to about 50%. Yet, when we wake them up out of deep non-REM sleep, they do the opposite. They overestimate their total amount of time. Now, it's nowhere near as much. It's by about 10%. So in other words, what stage of sleep you wake out of distorts your own subjective perception 
of how long you've been asleep to that point. And that then gets my mind fizzing with theories about time perception. And I've spoken about this before a lot, time dilation and time compression during sleep, that we can be in REM sleep and time is not time. It's a different sense of time. And when we're in deep sleep, time almost evaporates and we don't even have any comprehension of time. There is no such thing as, but we have definitely been able to see reliable differences. Do you have any thoughts on that, Eddie? Or that should be one of my podcasts, which is sleep is bloody amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very fascinating. Um, the first thing I think about when I wake up on a plane is why didn't I pay more for legroom? <laughs> because my body is yeah. in pain. There's always pain somewhere. I'm also thinking like, why did I choose the academic route? I should have gone in I gone just into Wall Street to, or something. I just wanted to add that we see this misperception also in terms of subjective sleepiness. So when you don't mm. let people sleep for their usual seven or eight, you only let them sleep five or six hours. So they would report feeling sleepier in the first few days. But then even though they're accumulating more sleep loss, they sort of plateau and they keep saying, I'm fine. And maybe it tells us that we're not so good. Or maybe we adapt to how sleepy we really are. I think it kind of touches on that subjective sense of it. Well, I think we adapt to what we believe our sense of sleepiness and our performance is. But unfortunately, objectively, we are getting even worse by the day. So it's not as though we adapt and we can start to deal with it and we don't show any performance impairments. That's not what you're saying. You were simply saying our sense of how well we're doing adapts, but objectively yeah. our true performance does not adapt. Yeah. And I think it's a very crass and it, it's a very extreme and incendiary example or analogy is a drunk driver at a bar. They've had five or six shots. They've had maybe three or four beers and they pick up their car keys and they say, I'm fine to drive home. And your response is, no, subjectively, I know that you think you're fine to drive home, but objectively, trust me, you are not fine. You are impaired. Let me call you a taxi. Let me call you an Uber or a Lyft. I'll get you home. Don't worry. Just give me the car keys. Exactly. And that's in some ways what we see in sleep deprivation. It's like another good example of sleep misperception that you don't know you're sleep deprived when you're sleep deprived <laughs> is the bottom line. And that's really rather dangerous for lots of reasons. The other thing that just came to my mind, thank you for gifting me this insight about people with sleep apnea, heavy snoring, sleep disordered breathing is what we call it. Now they will typically have frequent disruptions in the breathing, which can result in them waking up throughout the night. And here's one of the other dangerous aspects of sleep apnea, that when you ask those patients, look, how many times do you think you woke up last night? They may say five to 10 times I woke up. Yes, I know I'm here in the sleep center for sleep apnea. However, when we look at the data, they may have had somewhere between 30 to 50 awakenings throughout the night. They are underestimating the severity of their sleep apnea. So no wonder so many people walk around untreated because it's so understandable. They don't think that they're waking up as much, but frighteningly, objectively they are. Subjectively, they don't think they are. Mismatch between objectively, they very much are. It increases the need for treatment. Yeah. Here is a, actually a good point to remind that nagging is actually working sometimes. And if you feel that your partner is snoring and stops breathing, 
it might take a while to convince them, but it's really worth doing. I agree. Yeah. And I would say, by the way, just to shock people, and here I have no affiliation with the company, but there is an app for Android and iPhone called Snore Lab, Snore L-A-B. I think you get a free version and you can just like pay a couple of quid if you're in England, a couple of dollars in the US. I don't know what it is elsewhere in the world. And it's an app that you install on your phone and then you just hit record and you place the phone by your bed and it records your breathing. And it's very, very accurate at recording your breath and your breathing rates. Then it will show you your Richter scale level of <laughs> snoring across the night. And you can then tap on different phases. And I think it rates it from non to mild to modest. And then the final category is epic. That goes into like this red territory. It looks like this huge Richter shock. But what is frightening is that if you tap on it yourself, you can listen to yourself being strangled and throttled by your sleep apnea. And it is very worrying. It is very concerning. And it's one of the ways that I try to get people who say to me, look, I snore, but I don't think it's really that bad. But my wife, she now has to sleep in a different room. She thinks it's like a chainsaw when I go to sleep. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I know you don't think it's as bad. Download this app, listen back to yourself and tell me that that type of sleep that frequently across the night is going to leave you feeling good and going to give your body enough health to ward off disease and sickness. The answer is usually no. That's a okay. great advice. I actually use that app. It works really well. In you do? Act. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've used it before too. And for the most part, thankfully, I'm, I'm okay. But there are definitely some nights where I've been sleep deprived due to transatlantic travel. I've realized that I was sleeping on my back a lot, which is a thing that will increase the frequency of those. And it picked it up. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. And that's one of the other things. There's this shame around it. People laugh about it. Oh, he snores. And he, Goodness me, it will both decrease the quality of your health and decrease the quantity of your lifespan. The other supporter of this podcast is the electrolyte drink company called Element. Now, it's actually four letters, L-M-N-T. I am a bit of an exercise fanatic and I started buying their products some years ago really because of two key facts. First is the lack of sugar content. Element has no sugar. It also has no colorings, no artificial ingredients, which is unlike many of the other mixes out there that I was shopping. The second is because of the founders who have some serious years of biochemistry experience under their belts and they know what they're doing. So if you want to give it a try, just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker and you will get eight free sample packs on any order that you place. Once again, that is drinklmnt.com t.com forward slash Matt Walker. Okay, last question because oh my goodness, we're coming up on the last like, probably be over two hours. So okay. The last question, the juiciest one, very popular <laughs> topic lately, psychedelics. Oh, interesting. People ask, how does psychedelics affect sleep? Drugs okay. like LSD or psilocybin. And can we make the analogy that REM sleep is similar to what is happening when we take these drugs? That latter question is REM sleep 
similar to psychedelic drugs. And then also back in the 60s and 70s, after we'd soon discovered REM sleep, the question was, is REM sleep also similar to psychosis? These have been common questions. Okay, how to deal with this? Let me see if I can break it down on the basis of the different psychedelics. And let me see if I can dig into the receptor systems and the brain chemicals, the neurotransmitters and the neurotransmitter receptors that those psychedelics alter, because that will probably help us better understand the changes that they have on sleep. Let me start with just how they affect the brain to begin with. Psilocybin and LSD, there the target in the brain is principally, not exclusively, but principally a neurochemical called serotonin. And serotonin or 5-HT has lots of different receptor types in the brain. The principal receptor subtype so far that I think science has corralled around regarding psilocybin and LSD is something that we call the serotonin or the 5-HT, interchangeable, same thing. So the 5-HT, the serotonin receptor subtype is called the 5-HT2A. There are other 5-HT receptors to a lesser degree that those psychedelics impact, but that's where we see some of the major heavy lifting done or impact done. What is the direction of how it affects those? Both of those compounds are what we call agonists of the 5-HT2A receptor. In other words, they will activate those receptors. So they will mimic an increase in serotonin signaling within the brain. I should probably also mention DMT that's probably out there. It too affects serotonin. It too has been related to the 5-HT2A receptor. The direction of it, again, is that it is an agonist, meaning that it will stimulate the receptor. And so DMT, LSD, psilocybin, they seem to primarily influence and have their psychedelic effects through serotonin and through this receptor system. Now, again, it's not exclusive. What is that doing in the brain? There's lots of theories right now, but what we believe, at least in part, is that these psychedelics, by activating the serotonin system and the 5-HT2A receptor, lead to a consequential increase in the release of another brain chemical called glutamate. And that increase occurs in specific parts of the brain, which then probably brings me on to what do we know about the effects of psychedelics on brain activity before I come on to the effects of psychedelics on sleep. It's a very circuitous route, but I think it's helpful. Let me start with the effects of psychedelics on what we call functional brain connectivity. And Robin Carthart Harris has done some excellent work on that. I think he'd done a great podcast, the most recent one I listened to, probably with my dear friend, Andrew Huberman. He did a great podcast if you want to listen to that. Certainly what the field has been finding is that there is essentially an upscaling of the functional. Now, what is functional connectivity? The way that we describe functional connectivity in the human brain is just how many areas in the brain, different territories in the brain are chatting to each other at any one moment in time. And we define that co-occurring activity as them being functionally connected. And what we find is that these psychedelics will typically increase globally the level of brain functional connect. Now, this is not structural connectivity. It's not that as soon as you take these drugs, the brain is rapidly changing its physical structure. This is about the activity. And that's what we mean by functional connectivity. 
And there is data, at least that I've read, that psilocybin can increase that by up to 20%. The other way that we can measure this is not by putting people in MRI scanners and looking at the functional connectivity of the brain, but using EEGs that we use in sleep recordings and looking at brainwave patterns. And there was a great study, I think back probably like 10 years ago now, they were finding about a 60% decrease in the alpha band power of the brainwaves. What on earth is the alpha band power? Your brain goes up and down in terms of its oscillations at different frequency ranges. It can go up and down in the slow frequency ranges of maybe one to four hertz or one to four cycles. That's what we call delta. Then you can get faster activity, somewhere between four to eight hertz. That's what we call theta activity. Then somewhere between eight to 12 hertz is what we call alpha activity. Then 12, 15 hertz all the way up to maybe 25 hertz is what we call beta activity. And then there is gamma activity, which sits above that. And there seemed to be a very specific decrease in alpha band activity. Alpha band has been interesting. It's kind of being thought of as maybe the relaxation state of the brain that when you relax or you meditate, you can get increases in alpha. And here we're seeing an actual decrease in that activity. Perhaps it's related in the decrease in that relaxed brainwave pattern because of the upscaling increase in functional brain connectivity. You would think as you get more relaxed, maybe you get some of the benefits of these psychedelics, one of which is something that we call ego dissolution where you just let go of your self-importance and you realize just how small we all are in this incredible thing called the world. And that ego dissolution can have many therapeutic benefits. And what they were finding is that that drop in alpha activity, which we don't fully understand, particularly over the back upper parts of the brain, was associated with the sensation of ego dissolution, of the removal of one's own self-centered, ego-driven, centered view of one's importance. What about DMT? I probably haven't read the literature too much, but this probably starts to bring us on to sleep. Certainly the papers I've read on DMT were really more about sleep. And this comes back to your first part of the question. The changes in brainwave activity caused by DMT are actually very similar to those that we see in REM sleep. DMT can typically increase the amount of what we call theta activity, which as you'll remember from my quick definition, theta activity is one step up from the slowest kind of activity, which is delta. Delta is somewhere between 0.5 hertz to about 4 hertz. So your brain waves are only going up and down maybe three or four times a second. That's very slow. Theta activity, the next step up, that's somewhere between 4 to 8 hertz. Now, deep non-REM sleep exists in the territory of delta sleep, very slow, but big, powerful, slow brain waves, somewhere between 0.5 to 4 hertz. REM sleep is one notch up. REM sleep is dominated by theta activity, somewhere between four to eight cycles per second. So your brain waves are going up four to eight times per second. That's the dominant theme of REM sleep. And when you give people DMT and they are awake, they seem to go into a theta-like, in other words, very REM sleep-like state. You can see from the papers I was reading, increases between 40 to 50% in theta activity caused by DMT, which seems to be associated with the dream-like hallucinations that people report on DMT. 
maybe there is for DMT at least some degree of an overlap between the hallucinogenic sensory perceptual experience of DMT relative to the dreamlike theta hallucinogenic sensory distorted state that we call REM sleep. I've not answered your question, which is what about sleep changes? Architecture. There was a paper back, I think it was probably one of the first ones that I was reading back in 2016, certainly not the first paper on this topic, but it was a great control study. And what they found is that when they gave patients LSD, those patients exhibited across the next 24 hour period, it was over a 200% increase in wakefulness. So LSD seemed to be driving on the wakefulness switch. So forget changes in sleep architecture right now. We're just talking about it being an accelerator pedal of wakefulness. It then subsequently, when people fell asleep after LSD, it did disrupt their sleep. I think it was about 55, 58% decrease in REM sleep. There was about a 20% drop in slow wave sleep. And that was the following night after the LSD. But then what was interesting is that as the LSD was being processed and being metabolized and removed out of the system, there was a comeback the next night. And this is what we typically see when we deprive people of specific stages of sleep. And then we finally let them sleep. The next night, they have what's called a rebound. And they did. They had about a compensatory 35% REM sleep rebound increase the second night after taking LSD. So LSD first night makes you more awake, decreases total sleep duration, decreases REM sleep by almost 60%, perhaps between 55 and 60%. It drops REM sleep by up to 20%. But then the next night, particularly REM sleep fights back and you get this recovery night rebound effect of REM sleep. So LSD, I think the short story there is that it has an immediate sleep disrupting effect followed by a REM sleep rebound effect the subsequent night after the LSD night, if that makes sense. Oh, I should mention dream recall and LSD. What people have found is that participants can actually report on those, and it probably comes back to the intense REM sleep rebound on the second night, on those second night, there is a significant, seems to be up to about 50% increase in participants reporting dream recall. So whilst you are REM sleep deprived the first night, the next rebound night, you get an increase in REM sleep and you seem to get, if recall is a metric of how much you are dreaming, which is debatable, you seem to dream considerably more the second rebound night after the first night of deprivation. I think that has some really interesting therapeutic ramifications. Why would I say therapeutic when we're talking about sleep disruption? Well, one of the things that we have been looking at in terms of use of LSD, and we have a fantastic center for psychedelic research here at UC Berkeley through the amazing efforts of Michael Pollan and Tim Ferriss. Tim, you are an absolute gem. Thank you for making that happen too. And Michael, you're a dear friend who helps me with my writing of books and telling me what not to write and how to write. So certainly what we've been finding is that sleep deprivation can be one of the interesting, and I should do a podcast on this, one of the interesting treatments for major depression that when we deprive people of sleep, you would think that that would make them worse. And in healthy individuals, your mood does get worse. 
But in patients with major depression, often sleep deprivation causes an antidepressant benefit. And that benefit is then lost when you finally go back to sleep. So are some of the therapeutic benefits of LSD that have been used, including in conditions of depression, in part because of that REM sleep disruption and total sleep disruption? And does the rebound sleep that you have and the dream recall have some kind of a role in processing the emotion, the intense emotional experience that you had during the increased wakefulness LSD trip? We've got so many theories that we're trying to test here. DMT, I didn't really mention it. DMT, there was a great study. I think probably one of the original good studies was done by Strassman, and this was back in maybe 2001. And what they found is that when they administered DMT in the evening, it was also very sleep disruptive. It led to about a 50 to 60% reduction in the ability to fall asleep across the next three hours. So DMT experiences are probably not going to be experiences that are filled with immediate sleep that arrives with you with delightful alacrity. Sleep is very spoiled in terms of the chemical soup it wants. So flooding the brain Mm. with all these neurotransmitters doesn't always bring on sleep. Right. And I think what's interesting here, and, and neither you or I, we're not suggesting that any of these psychedelics are to be frowned upon just because they disrupt their sleep. I think it's going to be an amazing revolution in the field of psychiatric medicine for which there has been no revolution. If you look at, for example, and Tom Insult, the previous head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, NIH has said this, if you look at things like cancer, we've been able to bend the arrow of certain forms of cancer down on itself across the previous 50 years. But when you look at mental health, we have not been able to bend that curve almost at all. Now, that's not to say psychiatry has not tried. It's done amazing efforts, and we've developed some very interesting compounds. But really, if you look at it relative to some other areas of medicine, there has not been the same therapeutic development. I think psychedelics have the potential, if we do it right, I think people like Tim Ferriss have spoken a lot about how we should be doing it right, and how a lot of the clinical medical folks that he's been connecting with are telling us how we need to do it right. If we do it right, I think it could cause a seismic shift in our treatment of numerous mental health conditions. Right now, based on the efficacy of them, I'm really excited to work on the sleep component of it. We've been trying to get philanthropic funds, and if anyone is interested in trying to reach out to me to support this work, it's very difficult to get funded. But I think sleep has a prominent role to play in the therapeutic journey of these mind-altering drugs. We have no idea, and I think we need to, for example, is the sleep that you've been having leading into your LSD or your psilocybin therapeutic treatment, does that predict your ultimate long-term therapeutic outcome? Or does the sleep disruption that you have predict whether or not you get a therapy benefit? And how is sleep then in the subsequent weeks or months afterwards interacting with and predicting the improvement or lack thereof of these psychiatric symptoms? Considering the overlap between the systems and the neurochemical systems and the changes that we already know caused by these psychedelics upon sleep, I think sleep has a very untold story to tell in that equation. We just need to get the funds to be able to do it. I also realized, Etty, I have not mentioned, and it's not a psychedelic, but there is MDMA, ecstasy, street name Molly here, I believe in the United States at least. 
And MDMA is not necessarily a psychedelic. In fact, it's not a psychedelic. It doesn't alter your sensory perception, which is what a psychedelic does. It doesn't alter your vision or what you're hearing or what you're feeling or what you're tasting. MDMA is what we call an empathogen. And it's a very pro-social, or I think people call it essentially a pro-love drug. That too has had some work on sleep. I don't think anywhere near enough for us to understand the real changes yet, but I would say that MDMA should not be left out of the psychiatric chemical revolution that's probably going to happen in psychiatric illness. And I think sleep can play a major role there because many of the neurotransmitters it affects also play a fundamental role in sleep. And many of the brain areas that MDMA acts upon are areas that are very active in sleep, particularly during REM sleep. Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about ketamine? Oh, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Ketamine is not necessarily a psychedelic, although it can have sensory perceptual distortions, particularly sensations of, uh, I think, length of one's limbs. Ketamine is typically described as what we call a dissociative drug. The notion is that you can dissociate from perhaps what you've been clinging on to strongly in terms of your aspects of self-identity. And that aspect of dissociation has been suggested to have therapeutic benefits. The other way that people have described ketamine therapy, and it's principally used, I think right now, if you look at the data for a treatment for depression, although there's other areas of treatment use that are coming online, why is ketamine interesting text of sleep? Well, firstly, one of the things that some researchers do to try to study those deep, slow brain waves of deep non-REM sleep is to use ketamine infusions, and they've typically done this in animal models. We don't do animal research at the center. It's the center for human sleep science, but they've been using that, and they will almost be able to induce a state that looks not dissimilar to deep, slow-wave sleep. And in fact, medically, ketamine is used in higher doses in terms of anesthesia. It's used as one of the tools in the anesthesia. So if you've had some form of anesthesia, let's say you've had the delight of a colonoscopy coming up probably in my future, considering my age now as I'm solidly entering into the territory of the 40s, then Ketamine could be part of that anesthesia equation. So it is used in medicine, but it's also used therapeutically. By the way, it's also used recreationally as well. People will use it. It's illegal to use it in that way, but I'm not going to judge. But its treatment for psychiatric major depression has been very impressive. I described it as being something that will help dissociate an individual, but that's also not thought to be the only mechanism of potential root. The other mechanism is changes in brain plasticity, principally by way of altering and increasing something that we call BDNF, which stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And the infusion of ketamine into the cortex of the brain increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And neurotrophic factor means that it increases the number of synapses in the brain. That has been proposed as the longer-term antidepressant benefit of ketamine. Why is that important? Well, it's important because, as I mentioned, we, the sleep researchers, will use ketamine to induce slow waves in the brain and study them. 
And we also know that deep, slow-wave sleep is critical for regulating the synaptic brain plasticity in the cortex. And therefore, what we've also found, these were studies going back to the 90s. Again, Feinberg here, Feinberg and Campbell, were showing some early studies where they described both the antidepressant benefit of ketamine that was linked to an increase in deep, slow-wave sleep. So perhaps it's not just about ketamine-inducing increases in BDNF. Perhaps it's the fact that ketamine at night will also increase the amount of deep, slow-wave sleep. And it's the deep, slow-wave sleep that helps recalibrate the synapses in the brain. And you can see this happening every single night. It doesn't take weeks to happen. That benefit can happen at night. And those plasticity-related changes caused by the ketamine-induced increase in slow-wave sleep have been thought to be perhaps one of the reasons why slow-wave sleep has been associated with major depression. It's not just slow-wave sleep, though. There is also data showing that across the board, sleep is just better following ketamine. I think there is some animal work back in the 1990s demonstrating, for example, that your total sleep time will increase. The percentage of time that you're awake decreases. The amount of time spent in REM sleep increases, and the amount of time spent in slow-wave sleep increases. So in other words, you get more sleep because you spend less time awake, and that less time awake is filled by more REM sleep and more slow-wave sleep. So I think it's another fascinating area, and we would love to do a lot of work in this area too. You and I, Etty, were very interested and committed to the idea of looking at sleep and suicide. There's a very powerful risk between sleep disruption and even more so nightmares and suicide. I think this is a very interesting area to look at regarding the interaction with psychedelics and ketamine and decreasing and dissipating suicide risk too. I have said way too much on this topic. Anything you want to add before we close? I think it's a beautiful example thinking about the interaction between sleep, depression, and ketamine, exactly touching on what you said about the potential, the beautiful array of things we can look at when we combine psychedelics into our research. So I'm definitely on board. And is it fair to say that we can't really give a general how do psychedelics impact sleep? It kind of depends on the drug itself, right? Yeah, I think there is an overarching theme that psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and there, of course there are other psychedelics, but those are the ones where I think the literature is strongest to comment on. Those all seem to have a generally similar impact on sleep the first night, which is that sleep is more disrupted and you get less of it. And then there are some interesting changes in the rebound nights that do occur and how we understand the impact of that on the mental health benefits regarding sleep interaction, disruption, and then rebound. We have no real understanding right now. And you're right that there are subtle differences then in the architectural changes of sleep between those different drugs. Then there is also a very different story to ketamine relative to those psychedelic drugs of LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. And I think there's going to be a very different story that emerges for MDMA. It's early stages yet, as it is with that field in general. But I believe sleep is going to be certainly a significant voice of explanatory understanding 
in the work of psychedelics and other such related drugs Absolutely. upon mental health. Do you have time? I know it's been long, but a little bonus question shouldn't be long. Okay, I'll give it a try. It's a very interesting question. I've never encountered it before. Is there an association between sleep and height? Does being taller or shorter <laughs> affect sleep? Huh, never thought of that. No, no, I, I don't think I've ever been asked that either. And it's great to round it out because this has been a very long episode and this is going to be the shortest answer. No, <laughs> there's no strong relationship if you look at the data. <laughs> yes. There aren't that many studies on it, but no. That's not to say, by the way, that other aspects of your physicality, and particularly you, the individual, you being more or less physically active, those things do change your sleep. But your innate height, yeah. whether you are Shaquille O'Neal or a horse racer jockey with a slightly more diminutive height structure, no real difference. Yeah, there. function, but not <laughs> structure. Correct. Oh, thank you. Etty, for guiding this journey. Hopefully this hasn't been too psychedelic of an experience for people, but thank you for guiding and navigating this. If people listening are enjoying this, M I was just about to say, if people listening are enjoying this MDMA experience, <laughs> um, this has been a very long recording. If people listening are enjoying this AMA experience, not this my MDMA, first MDMA experience. experience. <laughs> oh my goodness then let us know on social media. And for people wanting to hear more of the wonderful voice and intellectual acumen of Dr. E.T. Ben-Simone, E.T., where can people find you if they want to look you up? Oh, thank you, Matt. I have a website, sleepingeti.com. Please come read about the work. Send me a line. So sleeping eti.com yes. sleeping eti.com yes okay. i would love to hear from you there's my twitter there my email send me your question Wonderful. and what is your twitter handle? my twitter is my nickname in hebrew etush e-t-o-o-s-h thank you so much for tuning in thank you for sticking through this podcast if you are enjoying it let us know if it's really enjoyable and you've really liked it then we may consider doing this once a month i would love to have eti on the show as i'm sure many of you would do for everyone listening out there, thank you so much. Take care. Good night. We wish you good sleep. All the best. Bye.